0: Morning, everyone. I hope that you guys enjoyed the uh, party. If you got a chance to do it, um, I suspect the folks that aren't in the room are probably recovering. It was a great time last night. We had T.I., the rapper, flashback.
1: Yeah, uh, he really, uh, yeah, I guess he competed with me by <laughs> keeping everyone up.
0: So, Alex, the it was interesting. When I first saw the book, I mean, it's obviously very thought-provoking about the fact that, and you make the case that fossil fuels are not something that society can Effectively function without, and they've received this in horrible, uh, just rap in terms of of, of, sort of the reputation of fossil fuels and how society is currently treating them. But you make the case that actually they're integral in every parts of a modern society, and without them, the world would be quite different.
1: Yeah, I mean, even further because the title of the book is Fossil Future. So there's a certain number of people who say, you know, we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, or maybe even, why are we even using them now? And there are some people who say, well, let's just phase them out a little more slowly. Like, instead of net zero by 2050, maybe 2051 or 2052. And my actual view is that by 2050, the world will be a much better place if we're using more fossil fuels. And that's an unusual kind of view, but I think the the facts really justify it if you care about human life on Earth. Because the basic fact is that fossil fuels are currently, and I believe will remain, a uniquely cost-effective source of energy and scalable. So those two things. So cost-effective means affordable. People can afford to use a lot of it. Reliable, it's available when you need it and the quantity you need it. And versatile, this is really crucial for your industry, able to power every type of machine. You know, many machines, most machines in the world are not powered by electricity. They're powered by the direct burning of fossil fuels because that's the most cost-effective or sometimes only way to do it, including in a lot of heavy-duty industry, and then they need to be scalable, available to billions of people in thousands of places. Fossil fuels right now are 80% of the world's energy. They're still growing, and in particular, they're growing in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy, namely China, which at this moment has 300 new coal plants in the pipeline. So they have more new coal in the pipeline than we use coal in the United States. So if you recognize, wait, there's something special about fossil fuels that they're actually growing despite being incredibly unpopular, And you realize that the vast majority of the world, 6 billion people, use an amount of energy that we would consider totally unacceptable. 3 billion of those people use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. I think there's an incredible burden on anyone who says anything other than we should be expanding fossil fuel use. Now, of course, you have to factor in side effects, particularly climate. We can talk about that. But we at least need to first recognize there are incredible and irreplaceable benefits to fossil fuels that if we lose them will, I believe, ruin billions of lives in the near future.
0: So, Alex, when you look at all of the announcements around EVs, some of the government mandates in places in Europe and and, uh, we see it in California, trying to get rid of the internal combustion engine, uh, as well as all the technology innovations that's taking place around electric vehicles, how do you make the case uh, to a public that sort of has looked at fossil fuels the way that my generation looks at the tobacco industry?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting even that people associate EVs with not using fossil fuels, because right now EVs are FFVs. I mean, they're fossil fuel vehicles. This is actually, I've had an interesting relationship with Elon Musk over the years, and he blocked me, he blocked me, unblocked me recently, but he blocked me years ago for writing a piece on Forbes that went kind of viral called the Tesla Model S is a really good fossil fuel car. And that annoyed him in the Tesla community, but it's true. Most of our electricity comes from fossil fuel because that's still usually the most cost effective way to generate it. In the United States, it's natural gas. In many parts of the world, it's coal for various reasons because they don't have the natural gas deposits and infrastructure that we do. So, one thing is EVs does not mean not use fossil fuels. That would require that you could use almost all solar and wind, or nuclear would be better, but we're, we've basically criminalized nuclear. So, all these plans involve using all solar and wind in the near future. And I think there's no evidence that that's doable. Even the attempt to do that is causing a lot of problems because when you use solar and wind, they can go near zero at any given time, which means you need almost 100% backup. Otherwise, you run into what we experienced where I live in California, or what Texas experienced. They, they like to play reliability chicken, so shut down as many reliable power plants as possible and hope for good weather, but doesn't work. So it's really, really solar and wind are not replacing fossil fuels really in the realm of electricity, and so the the e It's just we shouldn't think of EVs. EVs are like a great technology that we should be excited about insofar as they can compete on a free market. But the things to worry about are, one, forcing them, because forcing them on people makes people use something that's not cost effective, which to American drivers is just horrifically damaging to lower and middle class people to force them to use vehicles they can't afford. And the biggest existential threat is we're forcing an increase in reliable electricity demand on a grid that has a, that has decreasing reliable supply. That's what happened in California, right? Newsom announced, hey, no more EVs, right? By, and I'm sorry, no more ICEs by 2035. And then five days later, he said, don't charge your EVs. We don't have enough electricity. And that's at a tiny percentage of the penetration of EVs that he's forecasting in the future. So we should be excited about EVs, but as a technology to compete on the free market, talking about forcing EVs on the whole world population, is a disaster, and then talking about powering them via solar and wind, which there's no evidence that can happen at scale, that's just a total catastrophe.
0: So as I started reading your book, the things that really astounded me was the growth or the lack of sort of fossil fuels as a percent of total energy consumption has not dropped off as much as people assume. You know, when when we talk post about or write an article about the Tesla Semi or some other electric vehicle, or talk about the diesel supply shortages we had last year, The immediate response I get is, this is fine. Everybody should move to to electric vehicles. And what people don't understand is how critical diesel today is in our economy. They don't realize that the water supply that they drink is dependent upon fossil fuels for clean water. The railroads are dependent upon fossil fuels, uh, diesel specifically. And what's amazing to me is that the public has this assumption that we are progressing to eliminate fossil fuels but the data clearly says that's not the case.
1: Right. I mean, so they're declining slightly in relative terms and increasing in absolute terms. So that that should, and, and I mean, one thing that we should note is, so we've had in the last two years, uh, a global energy crisis, and we'll see what happens next year with Europe. But, you know, with Europe last year, they got lucky with a fairly warm winter, but they were they were worried about freezing to death, which think about that Europe. I mean, this is That's like a medieval fear, right? It's not, that's a Game of Thrones. You're afraid of winter, but Europe was actually afraid of winter. Why? Because they had just gone very, very slowly in this net zero direction where they had restricted the availability of fossil fuels and hoped that solar and wind would replace them. And it it worked very badly. So you just really need to recognize. I mean, the, the best thing is just do the like. Be really open to alternatives, but they should actually be cost-effective, you know, affordable, reliable, versatile. The the problem is when you decide that you don't like the way the economy is proceeding, you don't like energy economics, and you just try to dictate from on high. Oh, let's have everyone use solar and wind. Like that is a disastrous thing. And I think the energy crisis should be a wake-up call because we. Here's the thing: we didn't even move in the direction of net zero yet because. Fossil fuel use hasn't even declined. Net zero says it should be basically eliminated in 27 years. Just by slowing the growth of fossil fuels, we created a global crisis. So I hope that's a wake up call to people.
0: So clearly, in emerging markets, China specifically, India, fossil fuels are, as you mentioned, coal plants are still being built out. In Europe and the United States, uh, there is clearly a sentiment that we have to eliminate them at all costs. If we don't, we have this climate emergency that we're yeah. going to die. It's imminent if we don't solve this problem, according right. to the public sort of narrative or belief um, yeah. that's prominent in universities, that's prominent among politicians. How do we change that course? Or is it inevitable that this, these, these policies, like California's elimination of internal combustion engines, that this is going to continue to be a challenge?
1: I think that there's been a confusion that has persisted that's only starting to, to get untangled, that the, which is the equation of climate change with climate catastrophe, in treating those as the same thing. Climate change isn't even the right term, it's too sloppy a term, but just say climate impact. So the idea that when we burn fossil fuels, it emits greenhouse gases, those aggregate in the atmosphere, on top of the existing greenhouse gases, so it has a warming effect. And I think that's pretty good science. And we've seen in the last 150 years, we've used a bunch of fossil fuel. We've added, we've increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%. We've had about one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit of warming. And it's reasonable to attribute quite a bit of that to our energy use. But calling that a catastrophe is a huge jump. The fact that you have a change in the climate system doesn't mean it's a catastrophe. To be a catastrophe, it has to be a very negative change that we have no ability to adapt to or master. But if you look at the actual master, I think is the better term, like to neutralize the danger, like if you have a drought, well, can you irrigate? Can you move crops from one place to another? Then you can neutralize the drought. And what we've seen with fossil fuel use is because they've made us so powerful, they've made us so resilient, the rate of deaths from climate disasters like storms and floods and extreme temperatures has declined, wait for this, 98% in the last century. So that means a person has a 1 in 50 chance around the world of dying from a climate disaster compared to 100 years ago. And this is with us using a lot of fossil fuel and emitting a lot of CO2. So when people talk about catastrophe in the future, I always ask, well, do you acknowledge that right now we're safer than ever from climate? Because I never trust anyone to predict the future if they don't acknowledge the present. And most of the climate catastrophe movement, basically all of it, pretends that we're in a climate catastrophe today. And I think ultimately this is a philosophical issue. So, My background is primarily philosophy. I became an energy expert because I became fascinated by these issues, and I thought people were thinking about them incorrectly. And one reason I thought they were thinking about them incorrectly is because I think that we're evaluating the earth when we're thinking about it by the wrong standard. When some people look at the state of the climate, they just think, if we impact the climate, that's evil and it shouldn't happen. When I look at the state of the climate, I think, if the climate is a safer and better place for human beings, that's better. So I'm totally happy to have a lot of energy and one degree warmer if that's better for human beings. And more broadly, my standard when I'm evaluating the earth is not how little can we impact it, but how much can we flourish on it. And I think by that standard, the benefits of fossil fuels far outweigh any negatives, and we can expect that to continue.
0: So the media this summer... Had this, you know, this is shared publicly on social media. The warming, almost it, the, the, the graphs and the memes and all the sort of uh, materials that they were using sort of showed this boiling planet. And the yeah. oceans were boiling because it was so hot. Yeah. We, we obviously had a very active hurricane season. No, it didn't necessarily hit uh, the coast uh, to the degree that everyone sort of expected. How do you sort of reconcile what we're seeing in terms of sort of this public narrative around this heating or boiling planet versus the sort of need and desire to sort of have efficient, you know, transportation and energy systems?
1: Well, uh, let me recommend a resource, by the way, so I don't forget, because I created a resource called energytalkingpoints.com that's designed to just give you the answers to every single question in this category. We literally now have thousands of talking points. And if you sign up, it's, for, it's free. We actually have something coming out soon called Alex AI, which actually answers every question as me. So you could literally ask this question. It would give you a good answer because we have a really good AI team. Um, so, But uh, that's not here right now, so I'll give it. Uh, the... the um the issue with, oh, it's the hottest year ever, it's a boiling planet, it's again this issue of equating change with catastrophe. Because hottest year ever, it's absolutely not the hottest year ever. For most of there is history, it's been way hotter than today. Bernie Sanders like will say, oh, it's the hottest July in the history of this planet. No, no, no. At most, it's the hottest July in 150 years of fairly mediocre temperature records. But the history of this planet, it's been 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer for huge portions of time. The way warming works, people don't understand, is that it's more at the poles than at the equator. So it's not that the equator gets super hot, it's the planet gets more tropical. So as the planet warms, it gets a little bit more tropical. There's a question of whether that's even a negative on its own. But if you, because there are a lot of benefits, far more people die from cold than from heat and you get a lot of greening from CO2. There are also adverse things like more heat waves and sea level rises we could talk about. But whatever effect the warming has is nothing compared to the benefits of the energy. So my point is that energy is infinitely more important than climate change, including for climate livability. And that doesn't dispute climate change. It disputes the importance and alleged catastrophic nature of climate change. Because think about the United States. Uh, Where do you live?
0: here in Chattanooga.
1: Okay, you live in Chattanooga. So I live in California, but people in America live to 80, whether they're in polar Alaska or swampy Florida or scorching Texas, Arizona, Northeast, doesn't matter, right? We have every climate imaginable in this nation and everyone can flourish because we're at a very high level of climate mastery. And that involves using a lot of energy to make ourselves incredibly resilient. So if that's the case, then that, I think, shows that are, indicates that I'm right, that cost-effective and scalable energy matters far more than any change in climate that's remotely uh, plausible.
0: Is that a selfish thing, though? Living in the United States, the wealthiest country on the planet, Mm -hmm. vibrant economy, is it selfish for us to, to think that way, that, hey, you can live in Alaska and you can live in South Florida and be okay? Folks in Asia, India, Africa don't have that luxury. They don't have the wealth, be able to... Because they don't use enough they don't have
1: fossil fuel. So make the case. Yeah, yeah. So actually, um, a guy who's become a friend of mine and I've helped mentor, an interesting guy on, you can follow him on Twitter, Jasper Machogu. He just sent me, he's in Kenya and he was, he actually used to be involved with Greenpeace, but he got turned on to my work and some other pro-energy people. He just sent me this morning. He's made these shirts called Fossil Fuels for Africa. We were both recently, he was already, I mean, he was in Africa, we were both recently in Cape Town at African Energy. We talking about this. And the point that he makes and I make, I think, is fairly straightforward. If America and the wealthy world can use fossil fuels to master climate and be able to handle any situation, then everyone else needs to follow that path. So look at, I mean, Singapore has become basically the wealthiest place in the world per capita from nothing 50 years ago. They're at 99% fossil fuel use. Every country that has come up and become prosperous whether they have domestic fossil fuels or not singapore doesn't japan doesn't south korea doesn't but they become incredibly wealthy by using fossil fuels to develop and power the machines power machines to become productive and prosperous so if if people say well oh it's just america we we're wealthy yeah but we're wealthy because we have cost effective and scalable energy so that proves my point that the number one priority should be expanding the supply of cost-effective energy. And you cannot do that by restricting the supply of your most cost-effective source and most scalable source of energy, fossil fuel. What you need if you want alternatives, I do a lot of work in politics, and I'm a big advocate of this, you want cost-effective alternatives. So I do a lot of work to liberate nuclear energy, to liberate deep geothermal, And with solar and wind, I do work to make the grid more fair so that if they can actually provide reliable electricity, they can compete. So I want alternatives as much as anyone who cares about energy, but I want a lot more energy in the world. And that requires fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. So fossil future doesn't mean in a thousand years we need to use fossil fuels. I hope in a thousand years we use no fossil fuels. I hope we have something way better and it'll probably be nuclear-based just because the best sources of energy are usually the densest. Oil is the densest mainstream one we have today, but nuclear energy is way denser. I mean, you know, theoretically, a million times in practice, about a thousand times denser than than even oil. So that's what I want to see. But but if you want human beings to have a good life for the foreseeable future, you need to embrace fossil fuels.
0: So let's talk a little bit about nuclear. Um, it's a safe... I mean, it's obviously something catastrophic. We've seen these situations in Japan. We saw it. Uh, well, nobody died right. from
1: the radiation. They died, they died from... Uh, from, you know, from the tidal wave, 20,000 people died from the tidal wave, but not from, the, not from radiation from the nuclear plant. You can't have economic damage. I mean, there are things that can go wrong, although even that's, sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's like the, the disasters people can point to in the civilized world. So mainly Three Mile Island and then Fukushima, those are characterized by nobody dying from the, the main threat people are concerned about, which is radiation. So that's notable that you're leading examples. The only example anyone can come up with is Chernobyl, which involved a type of reactor that was never considered in the civilized world. And everything in the Soviet Union was deadly, right? Because there's just no concern for human life. So yeah, they didn't use containment. It was basically like a half-weapon, half-nuclear plant. And even there, it didn't do as much damage as people think. But yeah, the civilized world really shows that even when things go wrong with nuclear, it's it's better than anything else, because everything else can explode in one way or another. Particularly, like even a hydroelectric dam, in a sense, can explode you can, you can wipe out 100,000 people if the wrong dam explodes. You know, fossil fuel stuff can obviously explode. Nuclear, if it melts down, which is very rare, but that's a very slow process. And when you're talking about local safety, you want the danger to emerge slowly, not to be an instantaneous thing that people can't deal with and evacuate from.
0: I mean, there's a nuclear plant about 10 miles from where we're at. Yeah. There's a hydroelectric plant uh, probably three miles from where we're at right now. If that nuclear plant were to melt down, if you live near that plant, you would have to relocate. That seems pretty dramatic.
1: It it would just depend on the nature of it. It would just depend, and and there's a, depending on how long and and that kind of thing. So it's not necessarily the case. Um, But, okay, if the dam, I don't know the particular dam, but certain dams burst, like 10,000 people can die. So there are different kinds of consequences of things, but... um, Yeah, I I think that nuclear is, I mean, in terms of loss of life, it is the safest form of energy that human beings have ever created. And it's very notable that most of the same people who hate fossil fuels want to, they hate nuclear, even though they claim their biggest priority is eliminating CO2 emissions. Well, nuclear is the most scalable way we've found so far of eliminating CO2 emissions. Because unlike hydro, which is great but doesn't scale that well because it can only be used in certain locations, nuclear can theoretically be used anywhere. And yet the green movement has made it more and more expensive. Part of why a lot of my political work is in nuclear, going to D.C. next week to hopefully work on some nuclear legislation, is that the green movement has criminalized it. So nuclear was was a really growing technology in the 60s and 70s, and it was getting cheaper, and then suddenly it just became incredibly expensive. Well, that's not because everyone got dumb it's because it was treated as this criminal enterprise subject to infinite delay and infinite regulatory cost. So that, that's really br- bad.
0: Does it have a branding problem? When I hear nuclear, I think of the weapons and the you know, Hiroshima and, and all the sort of risk. But is it a
1: branding problem fundamentally?
0: I mean, how we think of nuclear energy itself?
1: Sort of. I mean, but I don't think you need a different term. So actually what happened was, rhetorically, it used to be atomic energy. And they said, oh, don't, don't say atomic because then we associate it with the atomic bomb. So, like, let's call it nuclear, like nuclear medicine. Like, we use nuclear, uh, you know, medicine all the time. And, and, but then the anti-nuclear people just started calling everything a nuclear bomb. So, if you come up with the new term... The, so, the key thing is to realize that there's just a fundamental difference in the technology between a nuclear bomb and a nuclear plant. And the easiest way to explain it is a nuclear power plant literally can't explode. So, one of my favorite energy thinkers, Peter Beckman, once said... If a terrorist uh, is able to blow up a nuclear plant, then what what do you say about that? And he says, well, they should win a a Nobel Prize because they'll discover a law of physics that doesn't exist. So you need to really understand nuclear needs to brand itself as the safest form of energy versus saying, because that's true, versus saying, oh, we're not as dangerous as you think. That's not very helpful. But if you say we're the safest form of energy, then it really sort of, it really wakes people up and makes them consider it. Sort of like with fossil fuels. Like, I have two books, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and the new one, which is the, the only one you need to read, is Fossil Future. Imagine if I had called those books, Fossil Fuels Aren't as Bad as You Think, <laughs> right? No one would read those books. But if I say what I think, the, hey, that we should have a fossil future, fossil fuels are actually good. They actually make the world a better place. They make the planet more livable. Then that, that is interesting. And I think nuclear needs to follow the same example. Really say, we are the safest form of energy and get people excited. By the way, electricity, you know, electricity used to have an image problem because they associated electricity with the electric chair. But electricity got over that just fine. And now people think electricity is infinitely safe. And in fact, batteries, Elon must get the credit for this, batteries people now think of as health food. You know, when I was a kid, people were like, hey, don't touch these batteries. Don't throw them away. Don't touch the batteries in the basement. Now people think, oh, batteries are clean. And then they're very startled when you see all these battery fires all over the place.
0: So, Alex, this is a supply chain event, and there's a, a lot of organizations in this room, but even broader, uh, particularly ones that are consumer-focused, uh, that have consumer branding uh, opportunities, that have made a commitment to moving to net zero. The challenge is that there's a significant trade-off in trying to achieve net zero and trying to achieve an efficient and robust and uh, fast-cadence supply chain. Should how do how do you sort of deal with that sort of narrative and and how, what should our industry, if they have influence over how the public thinks about these topics, as well as how politicians think about these topics, what should they be prioritizing in terms of the messaging?
1: I forget the word you used, but it was something like tension, uh, and and I would go a lot farther than that. I think it's just a complete contradiction. Um, so the net zero, before I talk about the rhetorical strategy, I think just as important to recognize, like the net zero by 2050 movement, this, this did not come from any real science. This came from activists who have long hated every form of cost-effective energy. So the modern green movement hates hydro, hates nuclear, hates fossil fuels, and also hates the mining necessary for solar and wind and batteries. So it's important it came out of this movement. Um, there's nothing in climate science that says you need to eliminate emissions by 2050. All of climate science can say is if you, you know, you'll have less warming if you eliminate emissions by 2050. But the idea of we should destroy the whole global economy, which is what net zero would mean in practice, and deprive billions of people from getting out of poverty, so not being able to follow what China and India did by using a lot of fossil fuel, you know, they 7x their fossil fuel. And dramatically in in 40 or 50 years dramatically increase their standard of living like i think of i think people need to think about net zero like if you take that seriously this is a death sentence for billions of people so my view is if you really think of it honestly you should not join this movement even if it's a popular movement you should try to be part of something else now what you can be part of is energy innovation so you could say hey we're innovating in cost-effective alternatives and recognizing, hey, the only way you'll ever reduce emissions long term is it with truly cost effective and scalable alternatives. If we just adopt, if we just incur a lot of cost in the United States, make our lives more difficult, that doesn't change China's traje- trajectory. That doesn't change India's trajectory. The only thing that changes those trajectories is if you actually have cost effective things. So innovate in nuclear, innovate in geothermal. That's if companies want to be in the space, they should focus on the innovation. But do not lie to the world and harm the world by claiming to be net zero. I will submit there is no company today, no industrial company today that is or will be net zero in any meaningful way in the near future. If you want to say, I'm going to buy a bunch of offsets, that is really misleading because offsets, insofar as they're not fraudulent, which they're often fraudulent, are a very limited pool. We don't have enough cheap offsets to offset all the world's CO2. If we did, then there would be no problem. I would just go buy a bunch of offsets from some of these offset vendors. So if you're a wealthy company like Salesforce, uh, you know, and you just buy a bunch of mangroves somewhere and then you take credit for it, well, that's other people can't take credit for it. So I, I consider it very dishonest and harmful for these companies to make go through these hoops to say they're net zero. Because what they're doing is they're saying, why can't everyone be like me? But they're all doing things that are non-scalable and that re- that require being rich. But what the public is learning is, oh, if Apple could be net zero, if Salesforce could be net zero, then we can all be net zero. And then they 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 support t- terrible legislation that hurts us here and that hurts billions of people abroad. Like this net zero movement is depriving Africans of the opportunity to develop because we're telling Africa, don't use fossil fuels, somehow use solar and wind. They're telling Namibia be net zero, like. Nobody is already basically net zero. That's their problem. Like, they need to be net positive. That's, that's what's necessary. So I just, I know it's hard in the corporate world and there are all these fads and all this ESG. So, but you still should not engage in intellectual fraud that hurts billions of people. And again, if you, it doesn't mean being a climate change denier, but if you want to focus on the emissions issue, focus on real innovation, but do not pretend that, this, that you are net zero or that anyone is getting to net zero by 2050. You're just harming everyone, and you absolutely deserve a class action lawsuit at some point, and that'll happen, and I will gladly help whoever is doing it, uh, to a class action lawsuit against everyone who's fraudulently claiming that they're net zero.
0: So, Alex, the, there, you think about the diesel, is so critical to our industry. There are alternatives that are cleaner, that are actually... We have the infrastructure today around natural gas. California has basically said we, we natural gas is not good enough. You must know, yeah. move to uh, what they would refer to as sustainable alternatives uh, versus fossil fuels. Is that a massive mistake? To to wouldn't we eliminate far more emissions by moving from diesel to nat gas than we would by going from trying to to sort of force implement this?
1: Yeah, and in particular, I think the emissions that are most important are like particulate emissions, particularly in really dead... So I'm in, not in L.A., but a little south of there. But you look at like the Port of Los Angeles, the Port of Long Beach. Like these are things that could benefit, assuming... In, and from what I've seen, you can do natural gas-type engines with a lot of these trucks pretty cost-effectively. But yeah, California is just saying, no, we just demand battery trucks, even though they're not as good and in many cases don't exist. Um, so that's just... So I think what it shows and this is a big point of Fossil Future, is that this is not a scientific movement because a scientific, and it's certainly not a pro-human movement, because a scientific pro-human movement is constantly looking at, hey, let's carefully weigh the benefits and side effects of different options. And insofar as you're concerned with reducing CO2, which I think is way overblown of a concern, but you need to recognize there are other concerns, including the availability of energy. But instead, they just dogmatically say, we want to eliminate emissions at all costs, and we don't care even whether it works. And ultimately what it means is it's just symbolism. Because if you do this, China and India aren't doing this, Russia isn't doing this. It's just symbolism. And this is why I think of it ultimately as a religion, in that people are just doing rituals. They're just doing the ritual of, hey, let's say we're going to use all batteries, versus actually doing something that addresses what they claim uh, to care about. And so that's you know, that that's I talk about that in Fossil Future, but again, I just want to recommend if people want help on these issues. Just go to energytalkingpoints.com. I used to do business consulting. I don't do it anymore. I just put everything for free on that website. It's mainly for politicians, but all of you can use it. I would love to see the world of freight and logistics say true and persuasive things about these issues because you guys are in a real position of authority, and I think you could make a big difference with the truth. Well, we have a lot of work to do
0: as an industry to focus on efficient supply chains and then also educate the
1: public. Yes.
0: Thank you so much for coming, awesome. uh, everyone, Alex. And you can get his book, A uh, Fossil Future, from Amazon.
1: Yeah, and then energy talking points to come, and I'll be around here for about an hour. I'll just be walking around in case anyone wants to say hi. Right, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Yeah.